Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Joseph Stalin got the nuclear bomb from communists working in, in the US. So this idea that there was this sort of like witch hunt that was completely baseless never quite made sense to me. It's not that they're saying, have you had communist ideas? They were asking, were you a member of a secret organization taking orders from a foreign power intentionally designed to destroy your current political system and implement a totalitarian dictatorship based on violence. If you value honesty, integrity and diversity, all things that are increasingly lacking in established media, then consider supporting us at Trigonometry. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews, plus exclusive content. Click the membership link on the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us. Michael, it's so awesome to have you back. We've had you on the show a couple of times. And I will be honest with you, when we were coming to Austin, we were like, we've had Michael on. You know, we've probably talked about a lot of the stuff that we could talk with him about, blah, blah, blah. And then... <laughs> it's, it's a wrap. It's, it's a wrap, that's it. We've tapped that well. We, we, it's <laughs> not a deep well. We've we drained his intellectual balls. That's it. There's nothing left. Right. But then we went for dinner yeah. and we just had the most incredible conversations about all sorts of stuff. Yeah. And we found out that your balls are indeed still quite full. Yeah, they are. <laughs> full of intellectual. You are welcome. <laughs> <laughs> no, man, but it was awesome. And we... Are they half full? Are they half empty? <laughs> I'm trying to be serious. <laughs> Let's find out. Yeah. Um, and uh, we talked about lots of different things. And I was sitting there the whole time thinking, why are there no cameras here? Because it would have been even more awesome if we had that recorded. There's no way that conversation could be aired publicly. That is true, but we're going to try to do the part of it that we can do on camera. Okay. Okay. Okay, so I should take my pants off now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also Melissa Chen was there. Have yeah. you had her on? She's terrific. Yes. We've she, had her on. Uh, she is twice. the yeah. most difficult guest I've had. And I've said this to her her face and I've said it publicly. Like Why? every aspect of having her on my show was a pain in the ass, even though I adore her. Why was it a pain in she the ass? She was complaining about the thumbnail and she was late and it was a whole thing. Like I had to reschedule three times. I was, I, I kind of admired the diva aspect of it to be <laughs> Someone as beautiful as her complaining about the thumbnail drove me crazy. I'm really, like, you're, yeah. you're, you're a knockout. You know you're a knockout. Yeah, I mean. Just like you, Michael. Well, I am an underwear model. You're an underwear model. Yeah, sheathunderwear.com. Go to sheath and use promo code MALICE for 10% off. <laughs> it's the underwear that has a separate pouch for both parts of your male anatomy. Right. Can we sheath. concentrate? <laughs> Michael, put your it's pants true. away. I know you've been told that many times before. It was created by a guy from the Iraq war because it was hot down there, over there. Okay. How do we segue from that to a serious... I, 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 Michael, let's talk about serious. McCarthyism. Sure. I mean, that is a hell of a segue. It's a segue. Right. <laughs> sure. But no, one it's of the... It's a ballsy topic. It's a ballsy there it topic. is. I did it. <laughs> one of the things that we're talking about at dinner is there's lots of stuff that we have a conventional narrative about. Yes. That I, is, I, I think... Well, I'm going to cut you off just... No, I, go, no, no, you help yeah. yourself, mate. Because yeah, it's I fine. think Don't, everything 
has a conventional narrative. And at a certain point when people become what's called red-pilled, you have that moment where you're like, oh crap, like literally everything I've taught is a narrative. Now the narrative might be true, but it is still a narrative because humans communicate not through reason, but through stories. Mm. Yeah, That's a really good point. Yeah. Stories are a very powerful way yeah. of getting people's attention and actually of misleading people. Absolutely, and also because we are emotional thinkers, not rational thinkers, and that applies to all of us to some extent. So when you have a story that kind of makes sense and makes you feel a certain way, it's gonna be far more persuasive than in charts and graphs, which can often be faked anyway. And also as well, with a story, you can make it incredibly simple. It's the story of good and evil, you yeah, know, yes. the hero's journey. Yeah. Whoever the hero may be, we identify with the hero and therefore it becomes emotional. And we don't want to new look at the nuance and complexity of the issue. Are you, is that passive aggression? No. The subtitle of the white pill is a tale of good and evil. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you're kind of dropping my mask. Yeah. <laughs> good and evil does exist. But uh, the reason I brought up McCarthyism, I always had this deep suspicion about that thing because when I was researching my book and long before that, frankly, like Joseph Stalin, the, the most evil dictator in the, 20, in the 20th century. Well, now. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a what off? It's a, it's a kill off. It's a, yeah, yeah but yeah, it's a camp off. I don't know. Sure. Right? Camp off is something very different, mate. Well, I don't go to that many gay parties. <laughs> anyway, um, not that many. <laughs> just enough. Just, just the taste. Just a little flavor. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Joseph Stalin got the nuclear bomb from communists working in, in the US, right? right? So this idea that there was this sort of like witch hunt that was completely baseless and that McCarthyism was about hunting down people who weren't at all communists, etc., never quite made sense to me, but I'd never bothered to look into it. So we're sitting there over dinner and I was like, Michael, given that we're talking about destroying narratives, tell me about it. And you were just like, Bleh. I did throw up. Yeah. <laughs> you literally Sickening. threw up. Sickening. <laughs> so tell us about McCarthyism. Well, first of all, uh, I had a quote from the, my book, The White Pill, I don't have it in front of me, but there was a playwright, um, Molly Thatcher, Molly Day Thatcher, I think it was her name was, and she goes, there were no witches. Like the term itself is intellectually dishonest, but there were, she goes, no, tried to talk to someone on the left and tell them that there were no communists in the unions, in Hollywood in politics who were working systemically under orders from a foreign nation to implement a violent overthrow of the state and implement a, you know, a totalitarian dictatorship. She goes, they know better because that term is intellectually dishonest and, and ridiculous. And Arthur Miller, who wrote The Crucible to, uh, which was kind of a, um, uh, an analogous to McCarthy era, years later was like, we didn't have it in our framework uh, that all these things that we hated about Hitler originated in the Soviet system, the secret police, the camps, turning families against each other. You know, I don't have the laundry list off to my head, it's also in the book, but Arthur Miller was like, like all these awful things that we hate about the Nazis, they got from, they did, or, or had at least preceded them in the Soviet system. So the term itself, McCarthyism, is also intellectually dishonest because McCarthy was a senator. Uh, the House on American Activities Committee was in the House, and that preceded him uh, to some extent. Um, and the question wasn't, it's portrayed as um, people were just members of this party. Like, it's not like they were like, Francis, <laughs> were you ever a member of the Green Party? This was a criminal organization under foreign control, you know, engaged in 
terrorism and, and violence and all sorts of horrific... And espionage. And espionage, all sorts of horrific activity, but it's portrayed as just basically instead of voting D or R, you're voting C. They don't believe in voting. The, the whole, I mean, this, it's, the, the whole point is to destroy democracy. And they were influential in getting Hitler into power in uh, Germany because they're like, we're not going to ally with the, the leftist party, the socialist party. And they called them, uh, was it called them, social fascists or whatever the term was? I forget what the term was. But so... It's, and it's just interesting because this is the one time in the U.S. where leftists were canceled and it's portrayed as the second worst thing to ever, ever happen in America other than slavery. And from their perspective, it is because this is, and again, this isn't leftist in the sense of we need health care for the poor. Uh, you know, people who can't afford college should get a handout and it's going to earn back for the society because, yeah, we're paying for their schooling, but they're going to become doctors and engineers. This is better for everybody. This is a violent totalitarian ideology uh, uh, discussed in secret uh, and, and with consequences, as you saw, such as, you know, Stalin getting the bomb and things like the Korean War and, and all sorts of other things. I think as well, Michael, that... There is a little bit of a grey line to me, which is people are allowed to believe ridiculous things. Sure. You know, I don't think that we should... I mean, this again, this is a grey line. For example, there are people who describe themselves as socialists, and as somebody who has seen socialism close up and seen the horrors of socialism, I think that they are demented and stupid, to put it bluntly. However, I don't think they should have their professional opportunities curtailed just because they identify as being socialist. So to me, there's always a gray line. Curtailed by whom? Sorry? Curtailed by whom? Curtailed by whom? But so, for instance, if you... Are you going to hire Klansmen? Oh, well, am I going to hire Klansmen? There's not many of them in, there's in not South many of London. Okay, are you going to hire uh, someone from the National Front? Am no. I going to... No, they don't exist anymore. But, but do you see... No, look, let's look, stop playing games. No, 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 I'm not playing games. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. I'm talking to him. No, oh, okay, no, yeah. no, no, no. But look, but, no, no, <laughs> but there was like a... This is like a circular firing Yeah. <laughs> But there was a very yeah, that's, that's the Polish communist. Yeah, but there was a very interesting case about 15 years ago when the BNP was still the British National Party, who were our kind of version of the far right. There was a teacher who was fired for being a member of the British National Party, and to me, it, there's always that grey line. Do you see what I mean? There's a difference between the government does it and when you do it privately. Yeah, it wasn't that you was illegal for you to hire a Hollywood screenwriter who was a communist, and they often just change their names under no consequences, if not were you know, valorized for their courage in the face of adversity. Yeah. Lillian Hellman went to her grave unapologetic uh, for her defense of Stalin. And again, this is not that they were simply, I like communism. Mm. This is, I want Stalin um, to have control over America. This is the, the, they're trying to create a gray area where in my view, there is none. And I agree with you that if someone's a teacher, you know, this is something we need to worry about because if, it's like if the government's just picking and choosing who could be a teacher, so on and so forth. But McCarthyism, broadly speaking, uh, although it does speak to the government uh, um, committees that were investigating this, it also speaks to this idea of, do I want people like this working for me? And if I discover that they're secretly doing this and, uh, you know, putting their ideas, their demonic ideas into my films or my books or so on and so forth, do I want this person on my payroll? I think that's a, not as a, that is not only a legitimate question, it's an unavoidable question. Because everyone listening to this, there are people whose views they would find so abhorrent that they would never hire them. Yeah. 
Right. Michael, maybe it's helpful at this point to actually, given that not many people know history, particularly of that period, to actually explain what happened during that so-called McCarthyism. What, what was actually being done? Well, I mean, this is a kind of a long... So, okay, there's just so many moving parts here and I'll try to break down yeah. as, as, as yeah. efficiently as possible. The thing, and I'm going to start with the present day, and this is why I'm, I'm just anticipating all the pushback because it's, it's just very maddening and frustrating. So boomer conservatives have, in the same way that the definition of a racist is someone winning an argument with a leftist, <laughs> right? So the, the, de <laughs> the definition of a communist is someone who boomer conservatives don't like. Right, yep. and, and they'll tell you with a straight face that Joe Biden is a communist right. and, and all this other stuff. Joe Biden is a corporate hack. He does not want the government running all industry. There, and and most people who in America, you know, are left of center. Let, let's suppose the Democratic Party uh, are not. Hillary Clinton's another example. Uh, maybe she has totalitarian tendencies, just in a personality-wise. She's perfectly happy to have Wall Street run everything. The communists are, and Wall Street are not friends in the sense that they are content to have Wall Street run everything. They want the state to run everything. Mm -hmm. And you might kind of try to evade the issue and be like, well, at the end of the day, it's just the same. It's really not the same. It's, it's having a monopoly as opposed to having you know, enormous corporate control. There, there's certain distinctions. I'm not saying either is good or either is bad. I'm just saying they're not interchangeable. Um, so as a result of this, they can't wrap their heads around some of the biggest anti-communists were hardcore leftists. Harry Truman, you know, is, is a great example of this. He became president after FDR, uh, and though they were kind of shaking hands with Stalin to fight Hitler, that quickly fell apart after um, World War II and the Cold War happened. You know, that's, uh, you know, it was Churchill in, in, I forget where it was, in Nebraska maybe, he gave some speech in American college and he coined the term Iron Curtain. He said, Iron Curtain has fallen over Europe and the good guys were on this side and the bad guys were on that side. And what's shocking to me, and one of the reasons I wrote The White Pill is, it is completely indisputable that for decades, this was the central foreign policy issue for everyone on earth. You know, it's, you had uh, you know, the communist second world, the Western first world, who's gonna win? And you know, it was not at all obvious, or it was not at all clear that the West was gonna win. Sputnik was a great example of this. They got a satellite into space before we did. This was proof that the Soviet system is great and, you know, can, and uh, when Germany was divided into East and West, it's like, all right, this is kind of proof of concept. And North, North Korea was doing better than South Korea until I think the early 80s because they were getting subsidies uh, um, from the USSR and from um, the Soviet Union. So what happens is you have the Korean War, you know, very quickly, uh, the early 50s, right after World War II. And we were, you know, we had BDE, right? Because we, we won World War II, uh, even though the, Soviet, the Russians like lost so many more people than we did, like we kind of, uh, we emerged unscathed. Like America became the undis indisputed, undisputed leader of the free world. And then it's like, all right, now the fact that the Korean War was a draw, this really changed that narrative. And this is why the Korean War in America is still called like the Forgotten War, because what's the story here? Like World War II is a great story, good guys versus bad guys, and we kind of don't talk about Stalin, right? <laughs> uh, World War I, okay, it was a disaster, it was a mess, but it's like the narrative kind of is like, don't get involved in international affairs if you don't need to, you know, what a tragedy, so on and so forth. Korea, ugh. Vietnam, is more talked about what happened here and the reaction as opposed to why are we there to begin with? We had our asses handed to us, you know, what happened. When they teach the Vietnam War here, they don't really teach about what happened to Vietnam after. 
it's just like we were there. We, you know, we, we were kind of routed, and like now let's talk about something else. It's very there's no follow up, uh, and this happens a lot with media narratives. A good example I remember, even I don't know the conclusion to this. Uh, just to kind of sorry sidebar, I remember Greece was having issues with their national debt and deficit, right? Mm -hmm. And the EU and Merkel were putting pressure on them. And you had this far left party who were like, we're going to repudiate the debt. We're not going to pay it back. And the EU's like, we're not going to do, you can't do that. And they got voted in and then just, everyone just stopped talking about it. Like I, there was no follow up here, by the way, of what happened after that uh, um, parliamentary election where that far left party got in. Anyway, um, so as a result of this kind of international rivalry, uh, there was, it was discovered that during the 30s, and there's a great book about this called The Red Decade, to what extent communism really captured the hearts and minds of Western intellectuals. It was much worse in Great Britain than the States, uh, much, much worse. Uh, because what you had people who were openly talking about, like, look, if we can't get it democratically, we're going to get it through revolution and, and, and things like this. And this guy was, a, I think, the chairman of the Labor Party. Um, so you had these congressional investigations. They found lots of stuff. They also accused perfectly innocent people or people who had communist sympathies. And in many cases, you know, their lives were wrecked. Um, so this is just a testament, in my opinion, to, to some extent, to the inefficiencies of government. And Congress is not really interested in finding truth. Congress is interested in grandstanding. But that term, McCarthyism, applies to many disparate concepts that are conflated together and thrown away. And it, I agree, it is important for people to have access to ideas and to be able to hold whatever ideas that they want. But I don't think anyone believes with a straight face that no matter what ideas someone has, they should never, you know, not be fired from their jobs. Maybe government is a different situation because that's a free speech issue, First Amendment issue. No, it's, it's, it's a very interesting point that you raise. And it's something that I really struggle with because if you believe in free speech, then everybody should be able to, you know, have the, they have the right to their ideas. But yet, if you are pragmatic, you realize that some ideas are so abhorrent that you wouldn't want to let this person with incredibly abhorrent ideas through the front door. But the key is, it's not that they're saying, have you had communist ideas? Mm. They were asking, were you a member of a secret organization taking orders from a foreign power intentionally designed to destroy your current political system and implement a totalitarian dictatorship based on violence? That's not the same as being a member of the Green Party or being, a, you know, a, a member of a socialist party. Yeah. Michael, and then what happens in the 60s? Because the, the narrative is, and this is the alternative conventional narrative, is that uh, Western, Western communists sort of realized that communism in terms of dividing people by social class wasn't going to work in the West. The workers were not going to rebel against the, the, the bourgeois because they all sort of thought, you know, the, the, the American dream is everyone thinks they're going to be a millionaire one day, so why would we tax millionaires type of thing? And then in the 60s, they kind of go, okay, we'll find a different way to divide people and we'll divide them along race, we'll divide them along sex, we'll divide them along sexuality, etc. Is that, do you buy that or is there a yeah, different... That, but I would just uh, uh, edit that slightly. It's not that we will divide them. It's that people, instead of being divided by class and irrevocably divided by class, the whole point, there's this concept under Marxism called polylogism, which is like, you know, oh, you're bourgeois, you could never understand my uh, um, working class thinking. 
because we're fundamentally uh, inherently different on a metaphysical level, which is why Lenin was like, all right, we just got to slaughter these people because I can't fix you. Like you're a member of the bourgeoisie and you will die a member of the bourgeoisie. They don't really like stick to it entirely because there were lots of, you know, these kind of champagne socialists, limousine liberals, uh, caviar communists who would like, they perfectly welcomed in with open arms. But that was kind of the uh, um, approach to being like, well, there's just some people there's no reasoning with. And, and that is true, broadly speaking, but it doesn't sort out by class at all in, in, in practice. So then, as you, as you saw correctly, uh, James Lindsay is the king of this, uh, his book, Race Marxism. They took that polylogism and they applied it to you know, different kind of identity politics. And it's been enormously successful and you can see it every single instance where you see as a black woman, it's like, well, hold on a minute. I mean, that's a nonsensical way to proceed a sentence because the claim is, do all black people or all women or all black women think this? No, you're one data point. So I'm not, I'm not in position to speak as a Texan or as someone from Ukraine or as a Jew or as a former New Yorker or as an American. To some extent I am, but to say that like, well, as an American, blah, 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 it is a bell curve and it is a range, but it's presented as each person kind of becomes the emperor of their mm -hmm. own little niche. And it also is a very effective um, argument uh, technique because, well, you're a white man, you can't understand what it's like to be a black woman, which is true to some extent. You can't understand that experience 24 seven living that lifestyle, but you can certainly understand uh, that person's ideas and be amenable to having life be better for them and, and hear them out. And it's also a very, very, very effective trick in order to silence people of your own race or background who disagree with you. Yes. Because you're like, I'm the spokesman for this person, and then if this person challenges me, well, then you're a traitor to this group. Well, I, I think people underestimate to what extent this is metaphysical. So uh, in, a, in, in this kind of discourse, race is something that is a state of grace. So in this worldview, Bill Clinton is literally black and Clarence Thomas is literally not. It is a mind, so race isn't just literally the color of your skin, it is a set of ideas and you know, class and all these other things that get packaged into it. So yeah, when they say that Larry Elder, is this a very notorious example, who ran for governor of California was called the black face of white supremacy, they weren't being ironic and, or anything like that. They, this is really kind of makes sense given their premises. It, it is. I remember watching this documentary on a, a heroine of mine who is Rachel Dolezal. Okay, oh yeah. yeah. Did you yeah. see when she got trolled on Cameo? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They actually bought me a Cameo for my 40th birthday yeah, from did. her. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, it was a wonderful. very nice touching moment. But <laughs> there was this really... <laughs> We should dig that up and play it. Oh, of course, we do have a special. This is a video message for you, mate. Have a look at this. Mm. Hi, Francis. This is Rachel Dolezal, and I just wanted to wish you a very happy birthday. Happy 50th. This little shout out is from Squirrel, and I hope that you have a very, very happy birthday. Do something fun to celebrate, and also uh, best of luck for your exam that's coming up um, in March this month. So I hope that you do well. I hope that your studying goes well for that exam too. And most importantly, happy, happy birthday. There you go, mate, your favorite brown bird. Wish you a happy 50th. What is my fucking life?
there was this really interesting moment in her documentary where it obviously came out, the, tr the truth came out, as it always does, that she's not black. And she was uh, doing a talk in front of these black students. And this girl put her hand up and she went, you're not black because you haven't earned the right yeah. to be black. And that to me was so interesting because it's not an immutable characteristic. It's something that you have to earn. You yeah. have to suffer for it. Which to me is a completely bizarre way of approaching race. Why is it bizarre? Because if in, in their subculture or this world worldview, suffering is valorious, which is, you know, it kind of enraises in, in the degeneration of the Christian ethic. Mm -hmm. So of course it's gonna be like, I've suffered, therefore I'm more virtuous than you. It makes perfect sense. It, it does, it does make perfect sense. But when you think of race as an immutable characteristic, then it doesn't make sense. But they don't use language to communicate, they use language to manipulate. Yes. So it's irrelevant. So let's talk about that, because I think that that fundamentally is what pisses me off the most about what's going on. Words have meaning. It depends on, I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to be pedantic, but in one context, yes, in another context, no. So the, you say that they're not using language to communicate, they're using language to manipulate. Right. Why? Why do people manipulate? Yeah. To, for power, for status? I mean, it, I mean, this is, you don't need my insight into this. Right. So how do we deal with that? Um, well, this is the part we talked about at dinner that I think, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think the, in all seriousness, the way to deal with it, and, and I don't think you're there yet, I'm not trying to be mean, is once you understand that, many things will, go, will grow clear to your understanding, right? You stop getting frustrated when you see like, oh, how could you say, you know, that Clarence Thomas isn't really black, you know, or so and so forth. Uh, Magat Wade, who lives here in Austin, she's from Africa. She's a great entrepreneur. She's very, very dark. Uh, and when you talk to her about this thing, this stuff, she kind of loses her mind because she's just like, you know, this makes absolutely no sense. I'm a very dark African black woman and you're telling me that I'm basically white. Uh, you're from America. I'm from Senegal. Like I'm from the motherland. I still have an accent. So, you know, their argument is language itself is always a mechanism for powerful people to maintain power. So if it's good for the goose, it's kind of good for the gander. And they don't always realize that they're doing it. But then there's all these little kind of mechanisms that like white fragility, white rage, right? So if unless you sit down and submit entirely like you are validating white supremacy. Uh, I just read this book. Um, there's this great woman, uh, Sarah Rao, S-A-I-R-A-R-A-O, and her she's uh, from the Indian, uh, Indian descent, Indian subcontinent. And there's this, her partner, Regina Jackson, and they have these dinners called Race Together. And you pay them $2,000 and it's white women come and they just tell them how horrible they are and how they're, they're all of them are Nazis and you know you have to decolonize every space and it's really exactly almost like the military or cult like cult programming they just sit them down and berate them and when the women start crying it's <laughs> just like well that's just white tears which is your defense mechanism to not do the work and maintain your powerful position so like and then they were like it's funny because in this book at one point they're like you know you betrayed your own gender because 53% of you voted for Donald Trump, who's a known rapist, blah, blah, blah. But then voting for Hillary Clinton, the Democrats are the same as the Republicans. I don't know what they're supposed to do as a white woman. Like you don't have any good options. And that's really smart from their perspective because if they're running the table and no matter where you go, you lose, well, the house always wins. Right. Yeah. So 
what it sounds like is you can't actually win the argument. Because it's not being done in good faith. Because it's not yeah. an argument, it, it's a battle. Right, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, very well said. That yeah. sounded more like intellectual, emotional BDSM than anything. That, yes. I actually tweeted that out that if, I, 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 I was not joking. I, I put on my Freudian hat and I said, uh, this is unsublimated uh, BDSM. Uh, um, these women should be reading Fifty Shades of Grey and not Ibram Kendi because it's very clearly that they're getting off on some way of the degradation and the masochism. Right. It's serving some purpose in their psychology, the, so, these white women. So come back to, to the argument. With the, so what that says to me is the idea of the marketplace of ideas is kind of, that's not gonna work here. Well, that's not true. There's lots of, in any marketplace, you're gonna have shitty products and you have products that, for example, liquid death is just water. But people buy it because it's got the cool label. It makes no sense, but they pay a lot of money. So a lot of times you want the packaging instead of the product. Yeah, yeah. we actually went into a store here and it's, it's one of us, what's liquid death? And they were like, it's just water. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I was, I, I, the first time I, because I, I thought it was some kind of cool beer yeah. and I'm looking at it, I'm just like, what the, I, I, I'm just like, good Lord. I mean, it would be a good name for water in Venezuela. <laughs> Why is that? Is it poisonous well, it's there? completely contaminated. Oh, good Lord. But, um, well, thanks for cheering us yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, I thought so. I thought that'd be funny. It's, it's just depressing. But uh, it's... I always, I thought of this, I, I wrote this, uh, how essentially identity politics is just the weaponization and monetization of white guilt. It, it, in part, yeah. And, and you just think, it just shows how actually the point that we come, that you said originally, emotions are stronger than reason. Yes. It's completely true because you look at all these people or a lot of these people who are afflicted by whatever you want to call it, mind virus ideology, they're all very intelligent. They all went to the best university. It's easier to train a smart dog than a dumb one. You have to have a certain amount of intellectual heft to engage in the mental gymnastics to keep a ridiculous philosophy uh, in your mind. And it also is a point of pride. It was a Tertullian, uh, you know, I believe because it's absurd, I think that's kind of a mischaracterization of his actual views. But the point being, it makes you feel, it's kind of a, any kind of mystery religion where you initiate into the faith and you understand things that the normies regard as absurd, you know, that is something that is a point of pride, not a point of shame. You have access to secret knowledge or hidden yes. knowledge. Yes, and you understand things that everyone else could never understand because to them it would be ridiculous. Right. So it's a status thing. So on the one hand, that sounds pretty bad. On the other hand, you think we've gone past peak woke now. Yes, uh, I can prove that we've gone past peak woke. Okay, again, I'm. I'm getting triggered because I'm, I'm appreciating the, the, the reaction. If, when you say something is not as bad as it was before, they hear, oh, it's not a problem anymore. Right. Right. So it's like, you know, like I had cancer and I have the flu. Oh, so you're saying the flu's fine. <laughs> you're saying everyone's had the flu. No, I'm just, there, peak woke is, is past. I'm not saying woke's not a problem. I'm not saying cancel culture is not real. I'm not saying this is okay. I'm not saying we should. Can I interrupt things. you there? Do you know what? What pisses me off about the world that we live in is that whenever you want to say people. something, <laughs> obviously, uh, you, you know, whenever we want to say something now, we have to do all these fucking 50 caveats, whichever side is going to get triggered by what you're saying. Because the average human mind is a series of mousetraps and those mousetraps are triggered when they hear certain phrases. Yes. So you know perfectly well there's certain phrases and certain uh, constructions that people have preloaded speeches and you know what those speeches are going to be.
So I think people who work, who have the kind of work that we do and travel in the circles that we do, we know exactly what certain things will trigger certain specific mindless reactions. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, peak woke, well, your work is still a problem, but you, I mean, just to explain for those people who might get triggered, the idea of peak woke is, you know, wokeness gets worse, 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 and worse. You get to the point where it's at its maximum and we are now on the downslope, in your opinion. I don't know if it was at its maximum, but it, it, maximum, it could have gotten worse. But I'm saying it's not as bad in current year as it was two or three years ago. And yeah. I can demonstrate yeah. this easily because there were many people. I, there's a, I can give you one personal example. I personally helped get Roseanne Barr back on Twitter. Roseanne Barr was canceled. They literally canceled her show. They killed off her character. She's been declared a racist. She's been read out of polite society. She's got a successful podcast. She's back on Twitter. Uh, companies are advertising with her. They did not succeed in canceling her. There's lots of other people who were just vanished. And the whole point of cancel culture isn't that like just you're fired from your job. It used to be this person is read out of polite society. You can, they're radioactive. You can't engage with them. Paula Dean is back on YouTube. Uh, Kurt Metzger, my, a comedian buddy of mine, had this great bit because um, he did the research about Paul Dean because she got uh, her life ruined because she, I think it was a court filing. She acknowledged that she had used a racial slur, right, at one point in the past. And Kurt did the homework and he goes, what happened was like in the 70s or 80s, she was a bank clerk and she was like robbed at gunpoint. And that's when she used like the N-word, right? And Kurt goes... They should build a statue to her. <laughs> this is the, the most progressive old Southern white lady ever because she had to be traumatized yeah. into saying this. He goes, they should build a statue and bring kids around and the statue should say she only said it once. <laughs> but because she admitted this, her life was ruined, but now she's back. It's not as back as what she was before. Yeah. And that maybe not, not a good example in that regard, but there's lots of people, Trump, is, is a good example. Like even 2015, 2016, this person's evil, literally Hitler, the cover of the Daily News had him, it said Antichrist, like where do you go from there? There's lots of people who, you know, he's back on, he has access to Twitter and so on, and, and uh, YouTube and other um, uh, agencies are now admitting, okay, we're not gonna be as heavy on the disinformation because you don't need a majority, you just need an alternative. And having Elon having Twitter and having a space where this shit's not gonna fly, Right away, you don't have that uh, monopolistic or oligarch oligarchy where you have like four or five agencies controlling the whole market and the rest of them are like, all right, there's no point in us putting in these resources because it's not going to accomplish our goal of having this kind of uh, um, hegemonic, hegemonic control over the microphone. And what happened with Roseanne? Tell everybody how that went down. Well, she was tweeting about Valerie Jarrett, who was uh, uh, an advisor to President Obama, who was born in Iran, who is passing. You know, she, uh, she's African-American. And Roseanne had this tweet about the Iran deal. She goes, uh, Planet of the Apes and Muslim Brotherhood had a kid equal, had a baby equals Valerie Jarrett. And Roseanne's like, it's like, oh, you're calling a black woman an ape and, and so on and so forth. And you know, this is someone who's a lifelong leftist who fought very hard for uh, you know, black rights, civil rights, and, and was known for this. But on her show, the character became a Trump supporter. So, and one of her writers even explicitly said, this shows humanizing Trump supporters. Mm. Um, and, right. Yeah. So this was something that had to be stopped. So, you know, they canceled her within minutes. Uh, the, the rest of the cast threw her under the bus. People who had their homes because of her, you know, who knew her for many years. Uh, it, she's lived, she lives here now. I've, I've become friends with her, which is one of the 
greatest things ever to talk to like Roseanne Barr and hear her do that laugh. Uh, was was her show as popular in the UK as it yes, was here? Yeah. Okay. It yeah. was. It was. It was put on kind of like a six p.m. slot, but it was still a huge show. Yeah. And then she had the Theo Vaughn incident as well. That was my fault. <laughs> I'm not kidding. So uh, when I did my book, The New Right, I had never encountered literal Nazis before. Okay. And when I and or Holocaust deniers. And what I learned is that there are very few Holocaust deniers. The Holocaust deniers are people who say the numbers are exaggerated. But I was like, wait, 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 you're saying like only like 200,000 people died, including many children. And like, that, I'm, like I'm like, wait, what? Like, I, I thought like, okay, if they're gonna say no one died, that makes more sense to me ethically or emotionally than like the numbers are exaggerated and like lots and lots yeah, of it was only died. two million i mean come yeah, on. it's, it's yeah. really crazy. who hasn't done that i mean stop whining get on with <laughs> it who hasn't been there so I, when i talked to them what was fascinating is that uh, they thought that the holocaust never happened but should have yeah. right and everyone's <laughs> going to take that clip now and ruin my life she thought she is very jewish she identifies as a rabbi and she's like, well, I never said I was a good one. <laughs> um, so she's on Theo Vaughn's show talking about things that are kind of, you're not allowed to say. She goes, yeah, Joe Biden didn't get a, uh, uh, Joe Biden didn't get 81 million votes and 6 million Jews didn't die in the Holocaust, but they should. And they took that clip and they, Roseanne Barr, Holocaust denier. And it was insane to me to watch how quickly it got, thank God for Twitter, because the community notes, which is a feature for people to know on Twitter is, if someone posts something disingenuous, the community can add a note to it to provide context. And immediately the community note said, this is part, of, she's being sarcastic, here's the full clip, this is a discussion of things that you are not allowed to say on social media. And to equate questioning an election with questioning the Holocaust you know, is also completely intellectually dishonest. But it, it didn't take. Yeah. Whereas a few years ago, this would have absolutely wrecked her. Do you know when uh, in the UK, when I think we reached peak woke, is there was a two-time male rapist called Adam Graham in Scotland. And uh, the moment he got convicted, he, descend he developed a prison onset gender dysphoria. I would do that. Yeah, <laughs> and then he got put in a female prison and then there was understandably uproar because you know he, she is now a woman and you're putting this two-time male rapist in prison. And then there was a very famous interview with the Scottish First Minister at the time, uh, Nicola Sturgeon. Oh, I love her. She, you, she's also trans, basically. <laughs> I mean, Just she throw looks, that haircut, sweetheart. Yeah, Jesus. exactly. Trans mixed with a potato. But um, <laughs> I thought that was Irish. <laughs> no, she does look like a potato. But then they were saying to her, well, uh, trans women, women. And she went, yes, yes. And he went, well, what about Isla Bryson? And went, yeah, but Isla Bryson's not a woman. So goes, oh, so in the context of a prison, then trans women aren't women. She went, yes, but... but trans women are, are women, but in the prison context, there is no automatic right for a trans woman. So there are contexts where a trans woman is not a woman? No, there is... <laughs> there is circumstances in which a trans woman uh, will be housed in the male prison estate. Is there any the context in which a woman born as a woman will be housed in the male estate? Look, we're talking here about trans women. And I'm now asking about women born as women. Uh, I don't think there are circumstances there, uh, but... So it's different for trans women? Well, yes. And I, I'm not... So they're not equal? That is not... The, there is a risk assessment process done for trans women that takes account of the nature of the crime. It clearly, it, significant concern arises out of sexual crime and whether it's appropriate for them to be in a female prison okay. or a male prison. And you could see it slowly crumble in her brain. And then there was this other beautiful... No, I gotta... 
Was it Go crumbling it. in her brain or was it crumbling like, how do I weasel my way out of this? I, I wonder, I right? actually genuinely yeah. wonder because I do think that I have seen this happen with people, particularly when I'm debating them or whatever, where you can see that glimmer of like, oh, what I'm saying doesn't make any sense. Suddenly it sort of starts to click. I, I remember I was talking to my college roommate about uh, uh, discrimination laws. And I said, in Las Vegas, or in Nevada, maybe not Las Vegas, uh, prostitution is uh, legal or, or decriminalized, I don't remember exactly. And I said, what if you had a, a woman who was racist, or escort or prostitute, and she wouldn't want to have sex with black people, would legally you force her to? And he's like, oh, I have to think about that. I'm just like, okay, like, okay, I'm out. <laughs> you know, yeah. but it's just, it's amazing when people are in, it's almost worse when they're logically consistent, because yeah. then it's like, do you not even hear where you're in? Because sometimes, you know, if you follow your logic and you end up somewhere in the wrong place, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Mm -hmm. I need to like, check my work, because this conclusion is something I'm not comfortable with. But when you have this kind of, you know, thinking, they just bite the bullet and that's what makes it scary. Yeah, indeed. And, but, and then there was question time, which is our yeah. most prestigious debate program. They were talking about this particular case and a former guest of the show, Ella Whelan, said to a member of the Scottish Parliament, member of the SNP, the ruling party, they went, is Isla Bryson a man or a woman? And she went, and she went, is Isla Bryson a man or a woman? And then the Scottish MP responded with the words, they're a rapist. And you just heard wow. this groan from the audience. Wow. I think most people at home will have noticed that you kept saying the individual. Um, but I mean, you have to beg the question, is Adam Graham the double rapist? A man? Who, now, who now calls himself Isla Bryson? Fine, if that's what he wants to do. Uh, a man or a woman, because the, uh, the question at hand is not whether this rapist sh should serve a sentence for rape, it's whether this individual <laughs> is a man or a woman and therefore which prison he or she goes into. So what is your answer? Is this individual a man or a woman? I'm sorry, this individual is a rapist? No, 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 the individual, we know that, we know that. I want to know, I want to know, is sorry, this individual Ella, Ella, a man or a talk, woman? Please? The First Minister was asked this question today at First Minister's Question Time. She gave the response Very that confusing she didn't... answer. If you'll let me speak. She gave the response that she didn't know enough about the individual in question, I would say likewise. But I think the most important thing in this case, we have to be very careful because we trust the Scottish Prison Service to make these judgments on behalf of Scottish ministers. That is their role, that is their yeah. job. And it's also worth saying to the point uh, in relation to reviews, there are two reviews underway at the moment in Scotland, one in relation to the case that was previously discussed, you the and that question. will report tomorrow, and the second is being undertaken by the Scottish Prison Service and will report directly to Scottish ministers. It is absolutely essential. We trust the prison service to make these you haven't decisions answered to the keep question. our prison population safe. I have answered the question. It, as no, you haven't. You haven't. But can I just say, Fiona, if I can cut you, the reason why well, I we, think this is... Jenny one more chance to answer the question? Carry because, on. Yeah. Because the audience I'd love like to hear your answer. I really would. This individual is a rapist. That is ah. the most important thing. Now, listen, the reason why this is such an important <clears throat> question is because, you know, as Kelly said, this is, not, this is a discussion that is not just about the situation of prisons or rape crisis centres, which are very important places that are sex-based for a reason. Um, and there's a kind of... It's remarkable to me that, Brit, that uh, politicians in this country, in Scotland and Wales and in England, seem to be, have given up on the you know, 
belief in reality that sex is real and that it's irrefutable. And that there are... <laughs> It's really important because if politicians and a government cannot deal in reality and in truth and deal with facts that are based on the things that we all understand, uh, then why would you have any belief in anything they say? Why would you have any belief in the justice system? Because for the one the kind of group that we haven't mentioned so far is women, and it's women who are being made to pay for it. And, but it comes back to your point, which is they use language to manipulate. And if you use language to manipulate, then the truth isn't real, right? There well, is no truth. Truth is not relevant. <laughs> so it's real, but it's not relevant. Right. Because it's, it's, it's unpalatable. No, no, or, it's or, because it's not the way the conversation is being had. Yeah, right. It's okay, not yeah. about the truth. Yeah. It's about who wins the power game. Yeah. And you see this in social media all the time. People are interested in seeking, like people try to argue with you. They're not looking for, uh, you know, let's kind of have this, you know, Socratic debate or, you know, this, uh, not Socratic, but just like have a debate and we'll come out of it some, you know, some version of the truth. It's more like they just want to one-up you or play gotcha. Yeah, 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 exactly. So that all said, we're past peak woke. What does that mean for where we're going? I am very hopeful for the future of, many aspects of the West. Canada, I think, is in the short or medium term uh, hopeless, but I would be giddy to be proven wrong because a lot of times it's easier to come back to the light when it's really, really dark. You know, like sometimes the relationships, if the husband is only a little abusive, you stick it out for like a very long time because you could tolerate it. But then like once he gives you a black eye, in many cases, like, all right, now it's a wrap. So it's, it's like boiling the frog. It's like people are, are, are comfortable with a certain amount, but maybe there's a point where it's a breaking point. So maybe Canada actually is more hopeful than the States, although my money would be on the States. Um, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I am complete. I'm in agreement with you. There is a caveat in that I think if Trump gets reelected, it's going to flare up again. What will flare up? The wokeness. Uh, I don't think so, and here's why. I, I think the anti-Trumpism will obviously flare up to an enormous extent, but I think the wokeness, uh, there's wokeness in the activist class and there's wokeness in the elite, right? And the elite only care about wokeness insofar as it maintains and controls their power, right? Uh, back in 2015, 16, you could not stop from hearing in the States about refugees welcome, we need more Muslim immigration. That Linda Sarsour was this uh, Greta Thunberg figure that they just brought her out every five minutes and she's the spokesperson for this whole movement. That's completely vanished and completely gone away. You literally never hear them talk about this. This was a total victory by the right, but since so many people on the right here regard themselves as perpetual victims and just also only want to complain about whatever the leftists are talking about right now and they live in a perpetual present, they've completely forgotten that this was a battle that they've totally won. So the wokeness is blowing up in their faces because Karen, who's the swing voter in America, the suburban mom, when Karen is seeing what's going on with these schools, she's going right, like hard right. So they'll be more than happy to throw this um, over the side of the boat if it doesn't serve their purposes. Now the activists won't be happy, but I, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, Biden and Kamala Harris get elected and the heads of BLM were publicly complaining that they wouldn't take their calls. So they didn't even have them like some kind of like, oh yeah, go meet with Kamala Harris, we'll have beers, photo op. They wouldn't even bother returning their calls. And this is public. So I think people underestimate because so much of 
um, social media and political media is just about like right versus left, how little behind the scenes uh, to many people this actually matters and how much of it's a smokescreen. That's very interesting. And it was always going to be, once you started to involve people's kids in this, there was only ever going to be one. I mean, I said this from day one, the trans thing will be what breaks us because you start messing with people's kids. I mean, I told you a story about a fan of our show uh, over dinner who, who's, who's kind of a default liberal, that I don't think particularly interested in politics, but her daughter comes home from school one day, very expensive school in New York. And I was like, mommy, am I a girl? Am I a boy rather? And she goes, why? And she goes, uh, well, I play soccer, don't I? And once you get and to I that said, point- I said, no, you're a foreigner. <laughs> <laughs> once you get to that point, you're gonna, um, you're gonna lose a lot of people. I, I'm, I'm not trying to be a contrarian, but I do wanna, I think this is a, just an important point to the audience. I think people underestimate to what extent uh, privileged, especially white women, are willing to sacrifice their children uh, for the altar of status. Um, and for them, having a trans kid is like winning the lottery, right? And you laugh, but it's, it's really the case. It's very disturbing. Uh, they're the only ones bringing their kids to drag shows because for these uh, off, affluent white female liberals, offals, ha a man in makeup is like the second coming. And you know, they're showing dad or their husband or whoever how enlightened they are, because this is what corporate media, corporate media tells them. So they can't wait to bring their kids and, and you know, show how uh, you know, with the program they are. So they are a menace. Um, and this, in my opinion, is Munchausen's by proxy. You know, they're torturing their kids for the sake of status and accolades. Yeah, uh, look, well, yeah, uh, uh, but they are minorities, is my point. Sorry, France, just to finish sure, the, the, this. Sure, but it's, 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 it's but, well, what I'm No, no, it's fucking awful. But what they are doing is red-pilling a hell of a lot of normies. It's, and it's also red-pilling to the extent that you realize this isn't a conversation. Right, like if I sat down with you and we're friends and I start talking to you about how you're gonna raise your kid, this isn't a conversation. It's, it's all, if it doesn't get to violence, like thinking you think in violence, it's at, at the, your first reaction is like, what are you even talking, like what the hell are you talking about? Like this is crossing a line that is so sacred, it's, it's ridiculous. So I think that is healthy in the realization that this is not a discussion. You know, when you're, when you're we could discuss like marginal tax rates, you know, social safety and so on and so forth. When there's such an asymmetry in the consequence of discussion, very quickly it's like this isn't something that could just be left to the hopes that I win a debate because maybe I'm inarticulate or so on and so forth or maybe I'm, you know, don't have the, the, the class or the money to back up my position. But if you're even risking my kid, my only reaction isn't to continue the conversation. My reaction is I have to get my kid away from you. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, and and you see some of these big Hollywood actresses, and they've got you know two trans kids, and you go, there is something deeply amiss here, deeply amiss. Yeah, and it becomes a status symbol, and, and you think to yourself, this is a society that has lost its moral compass. Well, the other thing that is never discussed in this this context, which I think is very important, is it is very widely understood that if a woman is pregnant or going through menopause, right? These are hormonal changes. It affects the psychology. No one argues. Ask any female ask who's pregnant, who's gone through menopause. They'll laugh about it. It's like, oh my God, one day I'm crying, one day, you know, and it's part of the human condition. Males who take testosterone, steroids, this is heightened aggression, muscle mass, all these other things that happened. The idea that, okay, I'm a male or female, it doesn't even have to be a kid, and I'm going to take hormones 
and it's only going to have positive mental consequences is insane. Because again, taking out the trans issue, when human beings' hormones are, are changed, it affects behavior. Hormones are how animals and humans are animals regulate behavior in many regards. But this is just completely not talked about. It's the, the focus is on the surgery, but it's like, if you take these pills or these injections, it's gonna screw with your head. Yeah. So this whole idea that like, imagine saying, I, what percent of pregnant women you know, have suicidal ideation? I don't know what that number is, but it's not gonna be the same as non-pregnant women. It's, they're going to have some sort of disorder thinking. Maybe it's not suicidal issue, maybe it's depression, maybe it's anxiety. Postpartum is obviously very much a real thing, uh, and I'm sure hormones have a part to play in that. But this effect of hormones on the, on the psychology, no one talks about, and it's extremely germane to the issue at hand. Yeah, and also, the thing that I really worry about, Michael, is this. If we are correct and we're past peak work, brilliant. That is something to celebrate. What I worry about now is the backlash because there's a lot of people who are very, very angry. Yeah, we talked about this, yeah. And they don't want justice. They want revenge. Oh, yeah, I want revenge. Oh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm <laughs> I, I thought you meant like the growing homophobia. Yeah, yeah, but this is what I mean. This is what I mean. This is, what, this is going, well, you know, you liberals, you wanted gay marriage. This is where it's ended up. So now I'm going to get mine. Yeah, the... It, it's, it's, I remember, I've talked about this somewhat recently. I remember, only, I only recently was reminded of what New York City was like in the 80s when the AIDS crisis was decimating largely and at first in you know, the gay artistic community. And there was this sense of kind of glee and like you asked for it. And, and one of the things I was, uh, I just watched this great uh, miniseries called Angels in America, uh, which was very award winning and-, and, and um, Tony Kushner, isn't yes, it? Yes, yeah. and, and uh, had many accolades. And there was this, and the thing that disturbed me the most, or not the most, but was knowing that many of these young men, because what happens is January, you have a cough and you're diagnosed, December, you're dead, right? And you're not just dead overnight. You go senile first and you, you're covered in Carposi sarcoma, which are these little spots. So it's very clear who has it uh, towards the end. And then your friends are all getting it. it and it's just this kind of sense of paranoia. Many of these men d went to their graves thinking this was God's punishment, because why are, is, are only me and my community getting this? You know what I mean? We're very much being singled out. Uh, and it was only when you know, kids started getting it through blood transfusions, when uh, bisexual men were spreading it to women, uh, then it became kind of more of a, like our problem instead of their problem. Yeah. But that sort of thinking um, is coming back. Um, and I don't know if it's inevitable, but if you have this intersectionality and this insistence that trans and gay and bisexual and, and lesbian, it's all one package deal. Well, for most people who are binary thinkers, well, if you're forcing me to choose between the kid stuff and everything else and hating it all, well, kid stuff's not an option, so I'm going with the hatred. Yeah. So um, any kind of nuance in, in this regard is, is lost. And uh, I think a lot of people saw this coming and it's, it's uh, uh, very disheartening to say the least. I, and I talked to quite a few gay men because they watch the show and they said there's now a real split within the gay community. I hate that term, but let's use it for... Between older gay men and younger gay men because there's a lot of older gay men who can see the backlash coming and can they see... They remember. Yeah, and they're, they're going, we're stoking forces here and you need to be aware of what is coming. And because of the younger gays haven't seen it, 
they've got no idea. Right, because you're 20, you're 25, your entire world was like seeing pride flags everywhere and channels dedicated to you and oh my God, you're so fabulous and all this other stuff. Mm, yeah. Whereas, you know, people who are much older, they're like, you know, I, rem I remember when I was in high school arguing with my dad because RuPaul wasn't out. And I'm like, you don't know that RuPaul's gay because the logic was gay's bad. Yeah. This person's, same with actors and steroids, right? Steroids are bad. Yeah. This actor is a good person, therefore this actor's not on steroids. You yeah. know what I mean? It's all these guys who just become jacked overnight. Oh, they're not on steroids. They just <laughs> have special exercise no one else is doing. So it's, um, it's coming back. It's clear. Social media, people say Twitter's not real life. Social media is how you can tell what's going to be in the corporate press and corporate media in five years. I mean, it, it just feeds. It's the predecessor. So it's coming down the pike, and I don't really know uh, what to say or do about it. There's also an interesting thing, which uh, obviously there's been a big spat between Elon and the ADL about anti-Semitism. Yeah. Um, and I think it's fair to say that all sorts of, uh, I'm using inverted commas here, but hate speech is more visible now on Twitter. Um, that's because they're doing less moderation and it, it, it's, probably, it's probably the price you pay for having less moderation. Um, but it, it seems to me like that is an issue that's also potentially part of the backlash. How so? Um, I see a lot of people uh, quite openly talking in a way that is... Um, oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I, I, I think the ADL is, is a very evil organization. No, no, I agree. So In, in this I, instance, that, yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. 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 But, but just more broadly, I think there's a lot of talk on the right, and by the left. I mean, anti-Semitism is a bipartisan Oh, no, position. right, no. So I, I agree, because if the, their perspective, which I don't think they're entirely correct, is if you're, choosing, if you're forcing me to choose between the ADL and being anti-Semite, a lot of them are going to choose to be anti-Semite. Yeah. Because the ADL, in my view, and it's pretty indisputable, are completely disingenuous. Uh, Haya Rachek, who runs Libs of TikTok, is an Orthodox Jewish woman, and they try to get her canceled yeah. uh, in favor of trans rights. So you're not really fighting for you know protecting Jewish people and the right to speak. You just have a hard left uh, gangster mentality. You're going to pick and choose. And how it works is, and what I'll be delighted to point out this technique because once you figure out techniques that corporate journalists use, not only do you see it anywhere, it becomes less efficacious. So it'll be like. You know, Jeff Smith, who was regarded as a hate monger by independent watchdog groups, and they'll have a hyperlink. And you click on the link, and it's always the ADL or Southern Poverty Law Center. So they work hand in hand. They're, the ADL and Southern Poverty Law Center label people as radioactive or Klansmen or Nazi. Then the journalist could be like, I'm being objective. This is my source. I'm not saying it. They're saying it. So they feed off each other like a snake eating its own tail. Use the word snake advisedly. Uh, and, and once you see this, every time I, I encourage people watching this, click that link. It will invariably want to be one of these two organizations that are used as a source. Mm. I mean, and that is so dangerous. That is so dangerous because the way that we casually fling these words around without... Don't say we. I mean, we as society. But we, there, there is yeah. no society. There yeah, is yeah. just us. Yeah, yeah. Okay, point taken. Thank you, Mr. But I'm, no, but I'm serious that yeah. when you use that word we, yeah. I am not in a, 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 a community with these people. Yeah, okay, agreed. So when you see those people throw those words around as if they don't have very, very real meaning. Right. What they've done to the word Nazi is a crime. To decouple Nazism from anti-Semitism is so ahistorical and intellectually dishonest. And, and also when you use things like climate, um, climate denier, 
to, yeah. to piggyback a Holocaust denier. You people have no shame. Yeah. Yeah. Because again, they don't use language to communicate but to manipulate. And, and it's also as well, it's, you, know, you don't have an understanding of history. You have but, no understanding. Yeah, they do, they don't care. Don't you get it? They don't care, Francis. But, but it's also, there's an ignorance tied into it as well because all they want to do is it's surface level. A lot no, of it is- No, all they want you to do, they're, they're trying to manipulate their audience to get them to do what they want. It's not that they don't understand, they don't want you to understand. Don't you get it? They don't think Trump's a Nazi. His daughter converted. That's not compatible with Nazism. Well, this is what I keep saying. This is what I keep saying, Michael, because it's, it's like, I mean, you're right. I mean, I am persuaded by what you're saying because if, I, I keep saying this, if you thought Donald Trump was a Nazi, if you actually thought he was Hitler, the day he got elected, you would pick up your rifle. Yeah, of course. And you would take to the streets yes. and you would organize to overthrow that government yes. by violence. And, and, yes, and brag about if it. If you are a moral human being, that is what you would do. Yes. Right? But they don't. And they call people Nazis, but they don't act in relation to them as if they're Nazis. Right. They, all they do is it's a, it's a tool. It means outgroup. It means bad, bad person. Yes. Outgroup is even better. Yeah. And, and, and the fact that they've done that to that word, which has a very specific and a very important meaning, it's a fucking crime. Yeah. It's a crime. Yes. Yeah. Okay, you've convinced me. Good. Guillotines. <laughs> We're on camera. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of guillotine, guillotine yeah. talk over dinner. Yeah, there was a lot of hypothetical, but not of guillotine Me doing. Metaphorical. Yeah. Yeah. Say again. Not of guillotine. There was talking, but none of doing. No. By yeah. the way, there's a book from the '80s, like a children's book, uh, called "How to Build Your Own Guillotine," right? Like a toy model, and I bought it, and I put a picture, and they pulled it from Instagram. Mm. This so, is all a metaphorical discussion. Yeah. So, Michael, when you say they, like, and again, this is because these are new concepts. I mean, this is what I'm trying to figure it out as we talk. What percentage of people do you think, who are the people who are manipulating with the express intention of victory? And who, and who are the people who do you think just aren't looking under the metaphorical car bonnet? at this stuff and just following blindly. Under the hood. Under I, the I hood. got you, I got yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm an Anglophile. Yeah. Um, it's almost impossible to figure out from, you know, it, this happens to you guys and me as well. People who see you, are your, watch your podcast, read your Twitter, social media, your writing, they think they know you intimately. Yes. Right? It's, it's, you, sometimes, I, I, constant, a great example of this was when you were on my podcast, and I was clowning you, trolling, trolling you, because you didn't know who Dave Smith was, and you were saying he's a nice guy, and he's a very close friend of mine. I'm like, oh, guy, this guy's terrible. And you keep doubling down, and I keep clowning him. Mm -hmm. And it was this great, awkward tension. Um, and then when I revealed I'm friends with him, you know, it came clear. It was a very fun, funny moment. Every so often you get a comment, and it just like really resonates with you for a long time. One commenter said, they're lying. These guys all hang out together, constant and clearly knew who Dave Smith was, blah, blah, blah. Who are they trying to fool? First of all, you're in England and we're here. So we're not all, Dave's in Jersey. We're not all hanging out. So that's yeah. literally physically impossible. But in their head, since podcasters are psychologically a set mm -hmm. and you can conceptually think they're all together, therefore in real life, they must also be a set and together. So therefore this is disingenuous. So we, it's, it, it's not knowing how many of these corporate journalists are just useful idiots, how many of them, you know, get what's going on. It's very hard to determine if yeah. we're not impossible. 
Um, but I think the issue is this is systemic. It starts at the universities, is promulgated through the corporate press, and then reaches politicians. So the politicians are actually, even though they're the ones implementing this stuff, are in a certain sense the less, least metaphysically evil because at a certain point, like let's suppose I um, was a Democrat, right? And I thought Trump's an idiot. I thought this guy had no business in the White House. You know, he's terrible. But I didn't think there's any room to impeach him over. It's just one phone call that some moron made. I don't have that space as a Democratic congressperson because all of my constituents have heard for years from CNN, Trump, Russia, Trump's the devil, Trump's the devil, Trump's the devil. So it's conservatives, I think, often have it backwards. It's the universities and then the corporate press that are wagging the-, the Politics the, is downstream of culture. Yes. Right. So I'm curious, the one thing- and I'll just give, let me just quickly. Of course. I, I had this poll and I'll encourage anyone listening to this to ask themselves the same question. If you had the Supreme Court, right? Uh, and sometimes when you give people two bad choices, they give me two, some good choices. I'd rather have nine Rand Pauls. Would you rather have nine random Democratic senators or, if you're on the right, or nine members of the New York Times editorial board? And when you put it in those terms, I think it's really clear who would be much more reasonable, who would be looking at the law, and who would be more of a jihadi without the testosterone. Mm. <laughs> one of the things that one of the things that used to bother me and perhaps still does, and what I'm hearing out of you is kind of taking me out of that space, is I, I hate hypocrisy. Sure. And all of us are hypocrites to some extent because we're all human and no one is perfectly logically consistent, blah, blah, blah. However, I think election interference is wrong. I think election denial is wrong. I thought that in 2016 when Hillary called Donald Trump an illegitimate president and when the mainstream media were pushing the idea of Russia collusion, etc. And I thought it in 2020, right? But for some reason, the, most people don't see that. And I, I still can't quite understand why. Well, there's no, because there's no such thing as a legitimate election. Because if I want you to be my accountant and I want you to be my doctor, somehow if 100 million people agree with me, I get it, unless there's 150 million people who disagree, it makes no sense. So if you're going in and saying, I want this person to be my president, the fact that it should be contingent on a popularity contest makes no sense. That's a different point. Let, let, I, let me just I, one this is more a different sentence, point. One more and it's an idea that's so absurd that the only reason we even take it seriously as a hypothesis is that we're trained to the contrary since kindergarten. Go ahead. Fine, but you're answering a different point. I, I know you're not a fan of, of the, the way that the system works, right? My point is something else, which is people apply different standards yes. to their own, I mean, I'm saying it as if it's some kind of big revelation, it's the most obvious thing in the world. People apply a different standard to their own tribe versus the outgroup. And, and they're correct to do so. Why is that? Because I, you can make jokes about me and say mean things to me and pat me on the, and you know what I mean, and, and be condescending to me because we're pals. Some rando comes up to me and talks to me like that. Who the hell are you? So of course we have different standards for our, our people as opposed to the outside. No, but that's not what I mean. I think of it as a, as a sporting game, right? I mean- It's a war. Because if you lose a, a baseball game, who cares? But for, for this system to work, it has to be treated on a long-term, we play an iterative game where you lose this one, I accept it, you accept it, then I lose the next one, we both accept it. And then it works. No, 
it doesn't work. It just, one side just dominates the other. So it works for the winners. Why does one side dominate the other? Because if you have an election and you have 60% and I have 40%, I don't have anything. Right, but if you look at the history of the US or the UK, the, the left and right kind of, they switch over No, they time. didn't. The Democrats had, uh, first of all, Democrats and Republicans don't always port to right and left because you'll have the right-wing Democrats. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Liberal problems. Democrats in the US had Congress for 40 years. They had it from 1954 through 1994. Uh, it's, it's just, it did not switch at all. Uh, the presidency did switch back and forth, but you from FDR through Lyndon Johnson, the only Republican there was Eisenhower, and he was basically indisputably a leftist. There's nothing particularly conservative that he did whatsoever. So it's not at all, it's only recently that there's been any kind of right of center renaissance on the national level in terms of Congress. Uh, relatively recently, since the 90s. So it's not, it's not, it's different for you guys with the parliamentary system because it's a binary choice. You're gonna have the Tories then. But, and I, I will bring up again, Mrs. Thatcher, because the whole point in the 70s was you had the politics of consensus. So you had, you know, Ted Heath from the Tory, of the uh, Tories, and then you have, uh, was it Kinnock? Who was, who, yeah, no, uh, Kinnock was later. Kinnock, uh, Kinnock was later. Who was before Kinnock? Was Alistair it? someone? No. I don't remember who it was. Whatever, you, yeah, you had yeah. the, the Labour guy and they just had, what, two elections in 1972 or something like that? And they basically had the same policies. It was at Ted Heath, the conservative, who brought in like rationing and uh, um, you know, not having electricity. And Thatcher comes in, she goes, I'm not for the politics of consensus, I'm for conviction politics. I'm gonna you know, say F you, and if you don't like it, don't vote for me, but we're gonna have a different point of view. That is not the way the post-World uh, War II uh, political discourse was had. It was very much consensus, let's work from the middle, and you know, in retrospect, it was kind of this quasi-socialist center-left middle, but, but that's the way it was. And I don't, why am I switching? I wanna win. Why am I letting my opponent win half the time? If the system is set up- I can tell I, why you're not married. <laughs> <man>. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I make the joke, but, but I have to say that way of thinking does prevent you from cooperating with others and cooperation is necessary i i don't i, I disagree i think my way of thinking is a useful long-term approach because if you have a dedicated uh radicalized minority they are going to punch way above their weight and we can see this just as we discussed earlier with the gay rights movement, because in the 90s, it was completely anathema. You cannot speak of this even in mainstream television. And now if you go to Times Square, and I'm sure Piccadilly, it's rainbow flags uh, you know, from pillar to post. Yes. yes. So this was a small group yes. who had intense convictions and they won resoundingly. And they always had disproportionate cultural power as well. That's true, yes. Yes, but what we're talking about in terms of my joke about, I can see why you're not married, any relationship with other people requires give and take on both sides. Whereas you want to win every time, no matter what. Yes, I always get which doctor I want, unless he's busy. I always get which lawyer I want. I get whatever I want in the store, as it does everyone else, assuming you could pay the price. So this idea that in politics, I'm not going to get what I want all the time is nonsensical. But in order for you to get what you want, you would have to be voting for someone to represent just you. Or you have to abolish the system that allows someone to rule over me. Tell me more. So this whole de democracy is, is, is just an obscenity that must be destroyed. And I'm very heartened that every metric is showing that people's faith in these long-held cultural institutions 
is not only being destroyed, but in an extreme direction. All right, Michael, I want to hear all about why <laughs> dun, the dun. destruction of democracy is great, but we've done over an hour, so the rest will be on Locals. Head on over there to see the rest of this conversation. Where has anarchism been successful in history? Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.